Welcome to the Global Inquirer, where we take a look at intriguing case studies that help explain and examine how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Nika Marsic, and today I'm sitting down with Katya Sanko, an economic and Slavic studies major and a researcher at the Global Inquirer. Katya, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Nico. I'm excited to be here. So our case study today is going to examine pre-university education in South Africa. And we're going to take a look at a story of a group of black students at Pretoria High School for Girls in South Africa who were told that they had to straighten their hair by school officials. And broadly speaking, we want to talk about how this case study explains the lasting effects of colonialism, and in this case apartheid in South Africa, and moving forward, how an environment of denialism doesn't create the necessary space for broader social change or progress. First, though, Katya, can you walk us through the story of the students in Pretoria in a little bit more detail? Right. So at Pretoria Girls High School, which is a high school to the north of Johannesburg in South Africa, um, the official school rules state that the girls must brush and neatly tie back their hair. And so what this implies is that the teachers can actually punish the students for not having neat hair. There are times when students claimed that teachers actually force them to chemically straighten their hair. This is pretty challenging for black girls because chemically straightening their hair could actually damage their scalps, and it's actually pretty painful. Um, and so this this raises this raises a major concern. So the students took to social media. So they started a hashtag on Twitter uh, called Stop Racism at Pretoria High School. And people took notice. The hashtag was used 150,000 times uh, by people throughout the world. So it it reached the attention of the Minister of Education in South Africa, who actually visited the school and addressed the students' concerns and explained that if students wouldn't chemically straighten their hair or if they didn't have the appearance of more, quote-unquote, white hair, then they would be given detentions or not allowed to attend class, which is very detrimental to a girl's education. This story introduces us to this complex entity that is South African education, uh, which we're going to dive into in this podcast. I find this story, you know, extremely disturbing. But one of the most fascinating parts about it is how these girls were able to use social media to, you know, to broadcast their voices to the larger South African community and gain attention to this disturbing reality for them. Right. The beauty about social media is that in this day and age, you have more primary sources and more accessible primary sources. And so these girls are given agency. They are given a voice and people are listening. Just to give us a quick history about education in South Africa, under apartheid in 1953, the Bantu Education Act was put forward. And during this act, it actually separated whites and non-whites and didn't allow them to attend the same schools. You can still see the effects of this, which we're going to dive into with our interview with Professor Knaus. Professor Knaus is a professor of education at the University of Washington, Tacoma. And a lot of his research examines how systems of oppression in schools or school districts intentionally silence communities. And so I think one of the most important takeaways from this interview is how moving forward denialism only perpetuates the lasting effects of colonialism or apartheid in this case. So let's give it a listen. Today in our in our episode, we're talking about pre-university education in South Africa. 
Professor, can you just talk to us about the current structure of the education system? Uh, yeah, certainly. It's wonderful to be here with you both. Um, the South African education at a glance looks a lot like um, K-12 education in the United States. Now, I'm going to say it looks a lot like that as a theory, not as a practice. Uh, and so what I mean by that is there's preschool, um, what they call creches, um, that are actually much more expansive, way more um, students, um, what they call learners in South Africa, not students, um, go to preschool um, and then on through the equivalent of K-12 through um, education. Uh, so on paper, it looks very similar. It's uh, in a pretty much an approximation of the British system. Um, so there's a high school exit exam, which is called matric. Um, and when students culminate, essentially do well enough through um, to their 12th grade, um, grade 12, you essentially, are, that's your matric year and you're um, studying for these exams and you have an exam in each of the major subjects. Uh, and the how well you do on those exams both determines whether or not you actually graduate um, and um, can get into different kinds of colleges and not just get into colleges, but um, are provided bursaries, so scholarships. Uh, so, so structurally, it looks very similar. Um, in practice, South African education um, is maintaining, I would say, um, the apartheid era infrastructures. And by that, I mean schools are either generally 98 to 100% black, um, 90s-ish percent colored. Colored is a um, specific uh, racial categorization in South Africa, uh, not to be confused with the uh, much more racist terminology that we use in the United States, uh, but is, is kind of the, the normalized term that's used for um, a number of historic communities within South Africa. Um, and then white schools, which generally have 75 to like 85-ish percent white students. Uh, so the dramatic segregation is across the board. And that said, I know we'll, we'll, we'll talk throughout this conversation about this, but um, just like in the United States, the, the schools where white students tend to go are, um, are well-resourced, I will just say. I call them the iPad schools. There's Wi-Fi. Um, they look like really nice, independent schools in the United States, but we're talking about a South African context, whereas colored schools look way less resourced, um, but at least resemble what would look familiar to Americans as a school. Uh, and most black schools, uh, most schools serving black students in South Africa um, don't have enough desks, don't have enough, um, don't have any technology. If they have some technology, they may have an overhead projector, but they won't necessarily have a smart board or Wi-Fi or iPads or anything like that. Um, so the dramatic disparities are the first thing that I think about when I think about the structure, right? So, so while there's a, there's a structure that on paper looks just like what, you know, similar to what we think about in the United States, um, the day-to-day -day reality is so racialized, um, and, and within a racist kind of orientation, and I say racist, not like there's seven bad white people thinking about how do we continue this, um, but the, the legal structures of apartheid have maintained in the day-to-day -day of schooling in South Africa. So what kind of uh, tangible barriers to entry are there for the white schools? Um, do they exist like tangibly or are these kind of just like cultural barriers um, are black students from entering white schools? Yeah, good question. Uh, so there's, there's a number of different um, variables. So one, one is that so there, there's a decile system in um, kind of a ranking system in South Africa. 
Um, and so that's really how you're funded. And then what, how you're funded with essentially public education dollars um, is determined on how much tuition you charge, uh, so what they call fees. So most of the white schools, what are called, what are referred to as former Model C schools, they were Model C schools during apartheid. Um, once apartheid ended, what these schools did was essentially institute um, fees because they knew that the amount of money that they would be getting from the government wouldn't be sufficient to maintain the level of standards that they had already developed previously. Um, so they immediately instituted fees, for, so the equivalent of tuition. These fees may be upwards of like the equivalent of 20000 30000 U.S. dollars. Uh, so when we're talking about black families where the average income may be several hundred dollars a month, obviously thousands of dollars, much less tens of thousands of dollars is not only slightly a barrier, it's impossible. That's a barrier to the vast majority of um, black folks still living in poverty, which is the vast majority of black folk within South Africa. Um, so the number one is is the actual economic barriers that are imposed. The second part, um, so you referenced culture, uh, there, the idea of being one of the only black students and not only one of the only black students, but also one of the only impoverished students um, is not that compelling to a lot of students, right? Um, it doesn't feel like that's going to be such a lovely, warm and welcoming environment. Um, and many of the schools that I've um, observed and, and talked to educators at um, across South Africa that serve predominantly white students, there's an intense isolation um, of the handful of black students because they're, they cannot participate in the bulk of extracurricular activities. They can't pay additional fees to, for example, take a media class um, because they don't have any kind of additional income like that, right? Um, and there isn't necessarily the same free and reduced lunch kind of program that we have in the United States. So their poverty is kind of laid bare for all to see when they're in a school that doesn't um, that charges tuition or something like that, a predominantly white school, right? Um, so there's, I don't know, I wouldn't frame it necessarily as a cultural context. I would say that there's a, there's the, um, the, the culture is that everybody just has money at many of those schools and to be somebody who doesn't, um, and to also be, um, one of the only, um, folks of color and black folk in particular, um, is just intense. It's like intensely isolating. There's a third factor is that, um, the level of academic preparation to be at one of these schools presumes that you've already been to a well-resourced school um, so that you're already familiar with typing and computing and Wi-Fi and all of that. When, but reality is that the bulk of black students in South Africa are, were not coming from schools that even necessarily always had reliable electricity. They may have had reliable electricity, but they would have a computer lab with really outdated computers. So to then all of a sudden be essentially thrust into a white school uh, the technological gap is dramatic, as well as the previous access to a, a like an elite college-going curriculum. I'm going to add one fourth piece: is that um, English or Afrikaans will be the two languages that are going to be spoken at white schools, but that's the second, third, or fourth languages for many Black South Africans. Uh, so, not often the language they grew up in. They may not have learned English or Afrikaans from a native English or Afrikaans speaker. Um, so they're also at a linguistic development stage that makes it difficult when uh, those schools don't necessarily focus on the development of English or Afrikaans from a like trilingual perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I kind of want to touch on some of the points that you made about apartheid. Uh, uh -huh. and just to provide some of our listeners a little bit more context, can you tell us what apartheid meant in South Africa and, and sort of how it affected their educational system? 
Yeah, definitely. So apartheid, um, some some historical tidbits that are relevant to Americans. So apartheid was based in part off of uh, Jim Crow era policies and practices and procedures, um, some of which uh, were intentional laws and some of which were intentional practices that weren't necessarily legal. Um, so South Africa studied uh, not only uh, Jim Crow, but also uh, Nazi Germany conversations, and then later um, Israel and, and Israeli policy around how do we develop a segregated society and how do we in, ensure that essentially across the board, all aspects of social life within the country are racialized to ensure that white people can essentially have the freedom of movement, freedom of housing, freedom of employment, freedom of education, um, subsidized by um, how, how I'm framing as raced groups, so by colored and black populations. So all movement for black people um, and colored uh, populations uh, they literally had to have a pass in order to be outside of a township. Um, and townships were structured in geographic ways where there were only one or two or three entry points into them so they could easily be shut down. Uh, so the control of human bodies was very um, legislated. And same thing with schools. So there were there was a department of education for every um, distinct racial categorization of people. So there was a white department of education. There was a, uh, there, there were nine black departments of education um, and then a colored department of education. Um, so each of these were funded at different rates and were ultimately tasked with doing different things. So the black schools were essentially tasked with how do, how do we build up? And this is, this was written into the apartheid policy is how do you essentially have black folk question their own self-worth and have a schooling system that's designed to do such flip side. How do you have, a white schooling infrastructure that sounds kind of like the United States, which is we want everybody to learn, be multiliterate. We want folks to have a global understanding of the world and their place within it. Uh, so, so you, apartheid was was a structural, um, economic, education, housing, health infrastructure that legislated segregation um, completely. Apartheid ushered into um, power with the National Party in the 50s and then ended um, in 94 was the, the official end. The conversation since 94 has been how do we get rid of the, the structures of apartheid when the entire country and every single mechanism of governance is rooted in apartheid? I'm questioning the system because it seems like now, like not much has changed as far as the way funds are allocated to white schools and black schools from before apartheid and after apartheid, given what you've said so far. Well, structurally, some has changed. I would actually argue structurally a lot has changed. Um, whether or not it's been able to disrupt those infrastructures and the impact of those infrastructures, I think, is a different question. So change doesn't necessarily mean eradication of, uh, of a racialized structure, right? Um, so what's different is... And when the, the African National Congress, the ANC, the current ruling party and the, and the party of Mandela that came to power in, um, in 94 and then 96, um, and I say 94 and 96 because 96 is really when the ANC started to actually take control. Access to education became one of the ANC's primary points. Um, and really, the argument was that there are so many black populations that are actually children not going to school because there were never enough schools to support all black children. So there are way more children and there's way more access to K through 12 education than there ever was during apartheid. 
Um, but the schooling infrastructure remains the same, um, or, or at least similar, right? So there, there are definitely changes in the conversation, um, but communities, township communities still look physically the same. Uh, but there, you know, there's no longer a pass law, so, so black people can go out and about wherever they go. So the, the infrastructures um, of racism are still there. There's, there's, I don't want to say there's no changes because there have been dramatic changes, um, but those dramatic changes ha- have been amongst, celebrated amongst the few or impacted the few. So South Africa is led by a predominantly black governance structure, um, but the wealth has remained largely in white hands. And, and so moving forward back into the like modern context, I noticed that in your research, you talked about how sort of the Western frame reforms perpetuated the like already existing racial and economic apartheid was that referring to the institutional reforms post-apartheid or were there also more western frame reforms that impacted uh the, like local levels of education and like local regional and beyond the state state level of education I, so part of the part of my answer is rooted in the notion of education versus schools and and across the globe uh, and I've written about this, and a number of other folks have as well. Schools look very similar, no matter where you go. Like there's, of course, going to be more or less technology, better infrastructures or less infrastructures, different kinds of books. Maybe the books are in different kinds of languages. But as a general rule, you can move to one of any random country around the world and go to a school and they will have a number of children, learners, students, the name for that may be different, sitting in desks or maybe tables or small groups with one or two or three teachers, generally somebody who went through college, who was who has a degree in education or a degree in some sort of field that's related to what they're teaching, kind of lecturing, maybe doing some group work, uh, but it, essentially doing the same kinds of instruction, technological innovations aside. Um, and that's a very Western model of education. It's and it's a Western equating of education with schooling, and that that foundation of of education equals schooling is exactly what South Africa has maintained, and and I would argue that that most countries around the world have maintained and implemented, um, such that when the ANC took over, and so to come back to the point about the focus became. How do we increase access to schooling? The focus was not how do we increase access to an education. The focus was how do we increase access to schooling because that was then the definition of education. So there, there haven't been a parallel um, investment in some other educational infrastructure other than Western frame schools in South Africa or I would argue globally. Um, and what that what that's meant is that it's not just that the school building itself all of the curriculum, the way that we think about desks, the way that we think about knowledge, the way that we think about language development, all of these become filtered through, well, what does the West do? Well, this is what the West does. Okay, well, let's do that. Let's approximate that. Um, and to that's to be honest, like that's how you get funding. Um, so South Africa is has a dramatic amount of external funding um, just at, throughout Southern Africa and most what we frame as developing countries. Um, the bulk of that funding aims to support the development and strengthening of Western-oriented schools, um, despite that there are, of course, a number of South Africans and people around the world who are like, wait, 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 we don't actually want that. Um, but there's no other infrastructure in place. So even if somebody wanted to donate to create another thing, um, there, there's no way to even 
necessarily conceptualize of that because we're so committed to, um, and I would say limited in our imagination to when we think of education, we only think of a Western framed school, not some other forms of knowledge, um, reproduction and sharing knowledge and developing knowledge um, in, in ways that aren't based in a traditional classroom space, if that makes sense. And, and sort of to conclude here, could you convince, like, for me, I think it's hard for a lot of Westerners to imagine how the roots of colonialism could still play such a large role in educational and economic advancement in a country. So how could you convince someone that these structures are still in place and, you know, they need to be fundamentally taken apart and reformed for any social or cultural advancement? Yeah, good question. And I don't know that I don't know that we can convince people. This is, I mean, this is an era of denialism that, that like, unlike I've ever seen, I think. Um, so, so I'm not sure that convincing people is, is necessarily the thing that I'm committed to. Um, and I say that in a, in a world that alternative facts become somebody says something and they believe it. And so that becomes truth and it gets reported on. Right. Um, so, so part of me, um, is not convinced that I can convince people. Uh, and, and I'll give an example that in South Africa, there are a number of white um, professors in education that I have spoken with and know uh, who deny the conditions of inequality in South African education, but they won't come with me to go visit under-resourced schools. So I'll say uh, I, for example, I just did a, a talk when we did a study abroad to South Africa last month. And after my talk, a white educator came up to me and said, Chris, you're making this up. Like, I've been to these schools. They're not that bad. And I said, have you been to this school? And I named a school. And, and this particular professor of education said, no, I haven't. And I said, will you come with me? And he said, no, because that's a really dangerous area. So this becomes this like self-fulfilling pro- <laughs> prophecy of like, well, I know it's not as bad as you're saying, but I'm not going to go visit it because I don't need to go visit it. I just know these things, right? Um, so in in those instances, I'm like, there's nothing I can do to convince somebody who's so, who's done everything they can to deny the dramatic inequalities that continue. And in some ways, that denial is exactly what allows these dramatic inequalities to continue. Because if I just keep denying that these kids don't have running water, then they don't have running water. And there's nothing they can do to convince me of that because I'm not going to go visit because I know that that's the case, right? And I would actually argue that it, just like in the United States, the denial of racism exactly what allows us to continue racism, right? Because if if racism isn't happening, then I, I need to do nothing to redress any outcomes of racism because racism doesn't exist. And if I don't allow anybody to convince me otherwise, then all I have to do is continue to deny. Um, and then every everybody who says something is happening because of race, I can just say, no, 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 no. Let me just deny that because I don't believe you, right? And no amount of evidence um, can convince me otherwise. And I think I would argue in the United States where we approximate this the exact same way as South Africans. The reason why we brought a bunch of students from the University of Washington to, uh, you know, across the, across the world to um, South Africa in particular was I wanted them to really understand um, not just the disparities, but how responses to those disparities are still shaped by Western orientations, even though the folks who live within those communities um, are, I would argue, not necessarily anti-Western, but anti um, the negative parts of Western, which is which is essentially the, the, the it's your fault you live in poverty. Um, so blaming people for the conditions of colonialism um, and be comparing that 
or, or like paralleling that with with the denialism to me, we're so far removed from admitting what actual problems are are um, and acknowledging the depth of these problems so that we can then identify the causes of these problems uh, when we're not even able to have a, actual dialogues around actual facts on the ground of what's happening in schools um, in South Africa or in the United States, because we also deny the dramatic disparities uh, between the types of education that black, Latino, Pacific Islander, native, uh, indigenous people in the United States also get, right? Um, so for me, the, the parallel of the continued denialism is exactly what allows the colonial infrastructure to maintain, because we can just keep saying it's not happening. I, I think that's a great place to conclude. Um, so thank you, thank you very much, Professor Knauss. That was that was fantastic. Yeah, no, thank you both. It was a pleasure to talk with you. You know, it's kind of funny, Katya. When we talked about this interview beforehand, we had really only expected to be talking about the lasting effects of colonialism, and where our conversation progressed was to be talking about this the nature of denialism in the 21st century and more importantly in 2017 and how it affects our lives in more aspects than than we might think um and my most important takeaway was the the effects of denialism in denying you know institutional racism whether it be in South Africa or in the US have have really lasting impacts on on not maybe my everyday lives, but on the everyday lives of a lot of other people in the communities around us, in the in Charlottesville, in the U.S. and around the world. Yeah, you're totally right. And whenever Professor Knauss said that he's seen denialism now, unlike ever before, that it's it's at these insane rates. Um, so it it kind of raises the question: Where is this coming from? And so let's just talk about denialism for a little bit. And so denialism is is pretty much um, denying a factor, a piece of empirical, empirical evidence in support of a more um, like psychologically comfortable fact. Um, it's really alarming given that we're at this age of, you know, scientific discovery and, um, you know, all of this empirical evidence readily available at our fingertips, yet the, the rates of denialism are, are still there. And so in the context of South African education, um, there are many people who claim that because of, theoretically, the legislation allows the integration of schools. Empirically in South Africa, it shows that the education standards in South Africa are substandard because even though they allocate a higher percentage of their GDP than most nations in the European Union, um, they're only ranked 75 out of 76 uh, in education system out of the OECD nations. Right. I mean, another pretty alarming statistic is the fact that, you know, whites in South Africa make up 8 to 10 percent of the population, but are 86 percent of the top income bracket. So when you have a society that's completely, well, not necessarily completely, but largely unequal on levels of race, I'm not surprised that these inequalities manifest themselves in their education system as well. Exactly. And now that we have so much information just so readily available, it's harder and harder to distinguish between legit legitimate sources and illegitimate sources. It's going back to the girls who took to, who took upon social media. Um, it's just interesting to see who people listen to and what people hear and what people trust now. And I think this is a really interesting trend that we should 
keep following. And that'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank Katya and Professor Knaus for coming on. And I hope you enjoyed listening to the story of the um, black students at Pretoria High School for Girls in South Africa. And largely speaking, the lasting effects of colonialism and how denialism in many ways can perpetuate these lasting effects of colonialism or just institutionalized racism in general. And while you're at it, you can like us on Facebook, uh, listen to some of our older episodes, and we'll see you next time. Cause emotionally You're the same basic trip And you know that I know Of the times that you slip So don't try to impress me You're just pimping paint And don't try to charm me With things that change